It's the Parade of Horribles podcast, brought to you each six months or so, <laughs> uh, whenever we have time to get around to it. Um, but, you know, look, our commitment to you is that we come up with quality guests for uh, each of our increasingly uh, few scant podcasts. And boy, oh boy, do we have a quality guest for you guys today. The but, quality but, The quality of guests. And I'll tell you about him in a minute. But first, if you've never listened to the show before, um, this is a show about civil rights law. Maybe the third or fourth best show about civil rights law, podcast about civil rights law, hosted by two guys named Dan and Joe in the country. Um, and uh, I am Dan Cannon, and this is my uh, cohort. Joe Dunman. There he is. Um, who has started a... Uh, moonlighting. He started Moonlighting as another podcast person just so he can, uh, on another civil rights law podcast, bumping us now down to fourth or fifth best. Oh, that's not possible. Um, no, it's... So, so, so tell listeners about that, and then we'll, we'll actually do the show. Oh, well, thank you for helping me plug my, my show, Dan. Oh, it's fine. If, as long as you're going to compete, you might as well do it out oh, I don't in think the open. I don't think it's competition. Um, I have started a podcast called Heightened Scrutiny. It's a podcast about the civil rights decisions of the United States Supreme Court through history. Uh, it allows me to talk in a room by myself um, to no one in particular uh, with the hope that somebody will listen to it and like it. This so if you're interested, go almost to... Almost sc- exactly like the practice of law. More or less. Yeah. Um, and so it's called scrutinypod.com. Uh, you, you go to the website, you download the, the episodes. We're on episode four. It just came out. It's about a, a little case called Kilo versus New London, which is fun. It's about a lady who loved her house so much, the government came and bulldozed it. Is so. that really a civil rights case, uh, though? Uh, yeah, I think, think so? takings. Like I think the takings eminent domain thing is civil rights? Yeah, yeah. I, guess, I guess I can buy that. So you've had like four episodes. So far. And you already have a, a website, which we don't have. We have a website. We, we do? just need to launch it. Oh. It's built. It's ready to go. All right. Well, so, okay. It just, seems like, it just seems like your priorities are, you know, someplace else. But that's fine. It's fine. I'm not I wish upset. I wish the listeners could see Dan's sad face. <laughs> He's just so sad. But adorable. Still adorable. Well, listen. Um, let's move on to bigger and better things. And the bigger and better thing today is attorney... And former judge and former prosecutor and defense lawyer and journalist and good God, what all are you? I mean, what aren't you? Let's start with that. Well, what, what, what do you his not name, do? His name is Mark Murphy. For I mean, the record. yeah, Mark Murphy. Yeah, but that's not important. What, what do you, what do you <laughs> totally not? Important. State your name for the record, please. What do, you, <laughs> what, do you, what do you not do? I mean, you're kind of the definition of a Renaissance man. And we've had Renaissance people on this show before, but. Good Lord. You're almost I mean, you overqualified yeah, yeah. for this show. Like, I mean, yeah, why are you doing really this? Great... Yeah, why are you doing the show at all? Shouldn't uh, you be doing something more like highbrow, like scrutiny pod? Ah, good point. Oh. <clears throat> well, I'm scrutiny, in the middle of changing agents. So, um, <laughs> that's good. Yeah, the decision to change the agent came as soon as I realized what was going on here. Um, no, I mean, there's no renaissance to it. It's the classic example of when people say somebody's in, what, an inch deep and a mile wide. Um, so you've never heard that. I can tell by the no, way no, you no. I've heard it. it. I've heard, you but, I haven't heard it in that context. But yes. Go ahead. So I'm an inch deep and a mile <laughs> wide. So, so what? Uh, but how do you describe yourself when somebody says, "What do you do, Mark?" 
I mean, how do you answer that? I guess it. De- I guess it depends who asks. Okay. Um, which may be a let's sign of us. a. Let's say let's it's, say a it's sign- us asking. Stop interrupting. <laughs> or it could be a sign of mental illness. I don't know. Why do you want to know? That's another. Re- that's another response. Why do you want to know? <laughs> what kind of uniform are you wearing? Right. Yeah. Or what's your badge say? Um, I'm an attorney first. Um, that's what I grew up thinking I would do and do. Um, uh, artist second, probably. Um, you know, you have to say husband and father first. Of and no, 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 you already said attorney first. I that's that's what was late. my next question. So, yeah, no, you've already sprung the trap. <laughs> well, there's right a now. personal and a professional element. We're just talking about there professional you go. right now. Yeah, sure. Exactly. So um, it's really uh, both at the same time. I mean, the average day consists of practicing law and then during the frankly necessary intellectual breaks you take from doing that, even for a couple of minutes, it's thinking about what I'm going to draw. But here's, here's the thing about you, is that you are a big law guy, but you're not, I mean, you're, you're not, you're like, uh, how do I even say it? You're, you're not a big law guy, but you're in a big law firm. Am I right about that? That's a good way to put it. So what's your practice like? Let's talk about your practice first. I really have a bit of a solo practice with the benefits of being in a big firm. Okay. Um, and the detriments of being in a big firm. Enormous overhead, people you have to see in the hallway. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Other big law right, people. Right, fellow, <laughs> fellow partners. <laughs> exactly. Um, but I have the advantage. Um, I've never had the courage to break out on my own and worry about hiring and firing staff. I'm an awful employer. When I was Commonwealth's attorney, I, I'm sure I was supposed to fire about 15 to 20 people, and I probably didn't. I don't recall. Um, did a you lot of monster. hiring. I know. I I'm just not good at that. People have to have a job, right? Um, so I have the advantage, in all fairness, of a large institution, the resources that come with that, um, the disadvantages uh, that come with that, the um, requirement we were kidding in some communication beforehand, the requirement most of the time to bill by the hour, uh, record time in six-minute increments, which which shreds your day apart. And to some people, can shred their life apart, too. I was able to overcome that. But but you're doing mostly criminal defense there, or what, what, is, what yeah, is your practice um, base? It's about 90% criminal defense. Um, it's civil matters as required, Often the same clients will have civil issues that come up. Um, I've had a very active civil trial docket. But normally even the civil matters are fraud-based. Because um, it's white-collar defense stuff, right? Yeah, yeah so exactly. That kind of bleeds into the yeah. – and, and it tends to be – I was telling somebody the other day, a client was asking me his options. Um, and I realized, and I was saying this even before I thought it through, but it's absolutely true. In 30-some years of practicing law, I've never encouraged anyone to file a lawsuit. Um, under the theory that with the exceptions of the work that you're doing uh, and a few other specialties of practice, um, I've never thought that that was worthwhile to the people that I was counseling. So I'm almost always, 99% of the time, defending someone who's been accused, frankly accused of fraud or something like that, and the accuser most of the time is the Department of Justice. Sometimes it's a private party. Do you think that you... Uh, sort of downplay the civil side of things because you've been so entrenched in the criminal thing through most of your career? Or is, well, I mean, take us through your career. Is that even fair to say? I don't think that I downplay it. Um, I've always preferred the, the criminal side. Um, you know, I started by prosecuting. So I was a JAG lawyer. 
uh, that's how I paid my way through college. So Jag, Jag, just for our listeners, and I oh, probably point. should go back, you know, yeah. and, and get some of these because we're talking like a, a room full of lawyers. We really are. Um, yeah. White collar criminal defense is business crimes, basically tax fraud. Uh, what do you find yourself defending most of the time? You know, it depends on what the attorney general, um, honestly, and one of the reasons this is interesting is it's because it's, it's very political. So whatever, war the attorney general decides we're fighting at, at any particular point in time. So for the longest time, it was Medicaid fraud and abuse. Um, it can be tax. Um, there was a period of time when most of my cases were environmental, criminal defenses. Right, but not like murders. Yeah. And, well, environmental, yeah. there's no such thing as an environmental crime anymore. So not that's, anymore. That's been abolished. Oh, right? you with the political commentary. It's timely. So, so yeah, but, but I mean, we're not talking about rape and murder. And, and that's my point, though, is, uh, you know, you're, you're kind of doing, talking more about business-oriented crimes, I guess, is the way to describe white-collar defense. You think that's right? true. Another way to describe what I do is I do those cases while I'm waiting for a murder or a rape or a, a, a crime like that that is um, much more human and, um, uh, frankly, is going to involve more court time is going to be, what's the word, less boring. <laughs> um, right. uh, so the favorite cases I've had have been, have been murder defenses. And um, uh, the rest of the time, to a certain extent, I'm paying the bills, you know. Uh, but the reason I like the criminal law in the big firm experience, if I'm going to be in that firm, is that it really is the only one. We don't have a constitutional law practice, as you can imagine. There's no civil rights practice to speak of. So, um, well, I wouldn't expect there to be a criminal defense practice. You know, certainly not blue-collar defense, but I, I guess I can see the white-collar. Yeah, and the reason that I like the criminal side is because even if it's just a business, so-called a business crime, um, you're still dealing with constitutional issues. You're still dealing with... The, the constitutional rights of a citizen of the United States. And, you know, whether it's somebody who's been accused of defrauding, you know, the SEC, um, although I think the Southeast Conference deserves to be defrauded at every opportunity, <laughs> but whether they've been accused of defrauding the SEC or um, of committing a murder or distributing, you know, cocaine, um, my aspect has always been what they did is, is either um, unfortunate or was intentional, and they're probably not awfully horrible people. Uh, what really matters the most is how the system conducted itself, because it's always, to me, about the system. Um, how did the police conduct themselves? How does the judge conduct herself in any particular circumstance? Um, because that's what affects the rest of us. Whether a guy sold some marijuana doesn't bother anybody. It's you could argue it's a victim, victimless crime. That's a whole other podcast, I'm sure. Um, but what really matters is if the police lie. Because if the police lie there, they're going to lie someplace else. And they do. And um, whether the police are the police or it's the FBI or it's the IG from HUD, um, government investigators need to be checked. Well, and you, I like doing you used that. Should be on the government side. So, so yeah. you have that perspective. Do you like doing defense more than you like prosecuting, or or which one? Which one do you prefer? I really enjoyed prosecuting because I always found it to be a challenge. You know, classically, defense counsel have one job, and that's always within the law and ethics. It's to represent zealously their client. Prosecutors, if they're doing it right, have two jobs: one's to zealously represent their client, the city, the state federal government but the other is to pursue justice and that's always that's frequently forgotten i have some close friends that are prosecutors they do it right but there's a lot of others that don't 
stay the Attorney General of the United States at the present time, nearly as I can tell. So um, I will not say that. Okay. Uh, so I enjoyed prosecuting um, from the professional perspective, but defending is much more fun. Um, because it's, frankly, much more entertaining and much more fun and a bigger challenge when you don't have the resources of the majesty of the state and you're representing either a poor individual or even a rich individual who still has the forces of the FBI and the Department of Justice allied against them, um, and you're challenging that, and you're trying to convince a judge, frankly, most of the time to do the right thing. These people had evidence. That evidence has to be suppressed now in this trial, and one out of a 100 times you win, you know. But you all know how that goes. Oh, we're lucky for if it's one out of a hundred yeah. times and so forth. But but I interrupted you, and you were talking about being a jag. Oh yeah. Um, and so that that for our listeners, judge advocate general, uh, basically a military lawyer, right? Um, and then so so tell us about that. How did that work? That was to sound like a seventeen year old. That was awesome. Um, we have a lot of people that come to our firm who uh, have had great college careers. They've been good students. They have great law school you know, bios. Um, and they say they want to be trial lawyers, but they don't really want to be a prosecutor and they don't want to be a defense attorney. And they come in and they don't have any trial experience. The great thing about being a JAG lawyer at that time, um, well, first of all, they paid for my college. So that's nice. Yeah, nice that perk. Helped. Right. Yeah, nice perk. Um, but you're a, you're a staff officer on a brigade commander or a battalion commander, or depending on where you are, a, a general commands uh, staff, uh, you're advising on things like the law of war. Um, you're uh, advising them about administrative issues, but you're also mostly a trial lawyer. And the great thing about trying cases in the military that you all would appreciate as trial lawyers is that it's always a blue chip panel, blue chip jury. Um, many of the people on your jury, actually most of them outrank you if you can imagine that, mm. and they're looking at you very skeptically because you're wasting their time or you're droning on and on, or the, you know, I, I've I've had questions, questioning of witnesses interrupted by jury members saying, "Move along, Captain." If you can imagine, um, what they 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 can do that. I yeah. had no idea. Oh, absolutely. They can just tell you to keep going because they outrank you. Yes. Huh. Yes. Keep you in line because ultimately you, you're outranked. But the key and where I was going to go with that is that the judges. And, you know, all of us have judges that we respect. All of us are attorneys. And, and we all have judges that we don't respect uh, for various reasons. They're not skillful enough. They're not, frankly, intelligent enough. They don't do their job enough. Or they're most, mostly worried about the LBA poll so that they can get reelected. Um, in the military, every judge that you're in front of has been a trial lawyer, first of all. They can't be a judge unless they've been a trial lawyer. Secondly, they're already colonels. They didn't just win an election because their dad was the county clerk. Uh, that sounds familiar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that's happened around here. So anyway, you, go you have to have, you have to have some personal achievement, you know, which is, uh, missing from an elected your, your, state your, elected judge. Uh, yeah, average. Judge. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's kind of gone by when the, the trial is over with. Yeah. And when the trial is over with, especially if you're overseas. So it was, it had all the advantages of being overseas and living in Europe and being a young captain and the things that come with that. Um, uh, but and living with the troops and understanding the military mission and all of that. But when the trial is over with, the judge, the colonel, will take you, the prosecutor, and the defense attorney, a captain, out and then spend the next three hours telling you what you did right and wrong from his own experience. Wow. You know why I denied that motion? Because you forgot to say X. Or, listen, don't 
ever do that again. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I've already talked to members of the jury. They said that that turned them off or et cetera. And so, wow. and you also learn how to be a trial lawyer. You learn how to not lean against the judge's bench. Like you go to court, you know, that, <laughs> yeah. stuff like that. So that right, was the, my de Jack the decorum career. element is certainly present in the military at all times. Very much so. So it's, so, like, a, it's like a boot camp for trial lawyers. It truly is. Yeah, that's great. It truly is. Yeah. So it was awesome experience. And I never wanted to leave that behind. I went to law school to be a trial lawyer. Like most of us probably did. No one goes to law school with all due respect to be a transactional lawyer. Well, they do good work. Right. right. Good people. Otherwise, good people. Good people right. Exactly. Um, and one of the frustrations of my career right now is that um, I, there's no trials. Hard to track cases. Trials yeah. are yeah. being taken away from us. So uh, as you went from that to, to doing, you were the, uh, the appointed, I guess, Commonwealth attorney. In right. Louisville, in the yeah. city of about a million people, um, so that had to be really something. Were you and you were doing? Did, did you do public defense work? No. Um, when I was Commonwealth's attorney, uh, I'd been in private practice for a while. I'd actually put together two political campaigns to run for office, elected office. Um, and in the midst of that, um, what were you running for? State Senate. Okay. Uh, well, actually, State Senate. Uh, David Karam, Senator Karam at the time. Uh, I think it was the 35th district, Senate district, uh, before they changed that up. I say it's all shifted. Yeah, now. none of that makes yeah. any sense. Yeah. Um, now, uh, he had suggested that he was stepping down, and um, I had developed a relationship with him, and I told him that I would consider it an honor to run for his same seat, and I began to do that work. Um, he decided to stay in the Senate, probably to save the Commonwealth, because if I was going to try to take his place. He knew that was bad for Kentucky. Right. Yeah. Um, and then I was uh, putting together a campaign to run, to run against Ann Northrup for the state representative seat. In the middle of that, um, Supreme Court Justice died, and Nick King, who was the Commonwealth's attorney, this is 1995, I guess, was appointed by the governor to take his spot on the Supreme Court, the on the Supreme Kentucky Court, Supreme right Court. And uh, I was appointed then to take Nick's place at the Commonwealth Attorney's Office. Wow. So, okay. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was a. It's what I wanted to do. Um, and um, save you the trouble of an election. That was nice. At least at first. Then I right, had to yeah. run again. Right. Um, but I was deemed insufficiently tough on crime. Uh, if you yeah. can imagine. Yeah. Uh, I was also opposed to the death penalty. Ah. Uh. You and, crazy person. Yeah, and I, I testified uh, at a hearing. Um, in Frankfurt, in front of our legislature, there were every Commonwealth attorney in Kentucky was there testifying about the death penalty. Mm -hmm. it, was actually, it, it was actually pertaining to the Racial, Racial Justice Act in the state. And um, it was like Friends of the Bride, Friends of the Groom, when you walk into the hearing room. So everybody's on one side of the room, and there I am with Senator Gerald Neal on the other to say, here are the reasons why capital punishment not for religious reasons, not for moral reasons, but for practical reasons. Every trial lawyer knows that the skill of the trial lawyer and the quality of judging and lots of other factors make a difference in the trial of a case, right? You agree with that? Yes. That's Absolutely. all well and good if you're talking about insurance money <laughs> or something else. Um, so I was able to posit an argument that didn't have to do with religion or morality about why the death penalty was something that we shouldn't be pursuing right now and um 
That didn't go over well at all. And the legislature there were seven or eight the people that thought that was persuaded great. by your rationality. That's right. yeah, go figure. Yeah, yeah, what do you know? You're just doing the job, right? Yeah, exactly. So anyway, um, then I returned. Sufficiently to- bloodthirsty. Exactly. Nah, it'll, yeah, it'll burn you. Did you, did you have to look at that? I mean, did you have to look at capital cases? I mean, how did you deal with that when you were actually in office? Uh, as a matter of, I thought the appropriate thing to do was to say, this is the law of the state at this point. Um, obviously, I had 35 prosecutors that worked for me. These are professionals, people that have been there forever, that knew what they were doing, and that were really good people. Nick King was a great Commonwealth's attorney, and he had a very professional office. Um, and um, my position at the time was uh, that I would follow the law of the state, but personally, and then also as the elected official, I would endeavor to try to change the law of the state. Um, but um, I lost the election to keep the seat the following May, and um, the issue became moot. So from military lawyer to Commonwealth attorney to big firm defense guy to, well, there's a judge in there somewhere too, right? You- when I first left the military, um, I practiced law here in Indiana. So I was a deputy prosecuting attorney um, in Clark County next door. And during that time, I also served as a judge pro tem, but that was just on a number of occasions. That wasn't a full-time elected position. So, but it's there. Yeah. Okay. So uh, all this stuff and then, and then big firm defense guy. And then, you know, all that stuff screams establishment lawyer, conservative establishment lawyer. Well, I mean, it screams, it definitely screams establishment. And so how, and let's get to the topic of the hour. Right. What our our listeners actually care about. What they know you for is your political cartooning. I think that's where where most people are going to know you from in this day and age. Sure. Right. Uh, and, and and subversive. You folks have not seen this stuff. It's great. I mean, it's subversive. Um, how would you describe it? I mean, it's, it's subversive cartooning, radical left, but but in a mainstream newspaper. Right. Yeah. You know. And and so, how do you get to be so? anti-establishment with your art from having such an establishment background? Well, on the surface, it appears that way. Um, I don't feel like I've changed. I didn't have a, if you're looking for a conversion or a, oh my God, I've been doing this wrong my whole life and, um, you know, a secular coming to Jesus sort of thing. I don't think that ever occurred. I do remember one time when I was at Notre Dame as an undergrad on ROTC scholarship pursuant to the JAG Corps thing, uh, marching in a protest march against the war in El Salvador. (laughs) (laughs) So I still always had the two sides, right? I was the Army guy that was in this uh, protest march with my friends with their, you know, bloody dolls and their signs. And somebody shouted, let's go to the ROTC building. (laughs) I'm like, I got a locker there. Um, So I had, I left that particular march. Um, the positions have been, I guess, in the establishment. Um, and it's not like I've been a Molotov cocktail thrower, but if you look at, there's for still instance, time. Well, there's that. Uh, and we may be all resorting to that. Hey, we'll see. All we'll right. see how the next couple years go. Edit, yeah. edit, edit, edit. It's just a Molotov note cocktail. Note to self. Yeah, note to Martin. Note to right. um, yeah, note to Martin. Um, but when you look even at what I'm doing in the, um, I mean, when I was, okay, when I was Commonwealth's attorney, um, uh, I was, it's, it's fair to say that I was not reelected or f- 
permanently elected to the position because of uh, liberal and progressive views. Um, I argued that we should build more schools and fewer jails, for instance, just as a throwaway thing. Crazy talk. Um, I know, it's just nuts. Um, and then in, in the firm in, in which I currently work, you know, I, I defend the Constitution is how I look at it. And it's not just a, a rationalization. It is what I, what I do. Um, I've always had um, what I consider to be a very patriotic view of what we should do in the United States, and that's express our opinions regardless of the First Amendment, say what we believe the truth to be. Um, I have always been um, you know, a Democrat as far as that goes. And the cartooning itself, uh, I give great credit to the paper. Um, Talk about the Courier Journal. The Courier Journal, the Louisville Courier Journal. I, if we were in Indianapolis, for instance, um, or probably Columbus, Ohio, or maybe even Cincinnati, um, with the same, to whatever extent that it exists, with the same talents and the same interests and everything else, um, because the paper there because a flagship paper wouldn't have already had, had the liberal history. Um, they probably never would have started to publish me in the first place. So I wouldn't exist as the artist that you're talking about uh, if there already hadn't been a Bingham-owned newspaper that still has the vestiges and sort of that lineage of a liberal or progressive bent. Right. So, okay, so how, before before the Courier-Journal, when did you start drawing? How did you get into it? What was the, the creative spark there? Well, I always drew. Um, I wasn't one of these 40-year-old children in seven-year-old bodies like you see some kids. I was just a kid. But I did always have an awareness that I wasn't going to ever be able to have any money if I just drew, <laughs> right? Um and and unlike some musicians whom I respect and admire who basically, you know, tie themselves to the mast of their ships and say, I'm going to make music or I'm going to die, one of the two. I was never that way. Um, art helped me get through school and I did extra credit posters and I got out of some tests and <laughs> things like that. Um, uh, I respected the cartoonist uh, in college who, who did that. I drew some there. Um, but I always had this other career. And I mean, I fully intended... By the time I was, I mean, through college, probably I fully intended to be president of the United States. Huh. You know, like probably a third of the people that are in political science in college at the time. Um, so I didn't want to be an artist. I wanted to be, you know, a senator. Um, and there's still time for you to be president, by the way. Uh, yeah. And, I mean, if there's it, it keeps something we've older. really learned over yes. the last, you know, I don't know, six months or so, is that anybody... Anybody yeah. truly can be president of the United States. And a lot of them Anyone. don't run to their 70, so you're okay. <laughs> Anyone. <laughs> um, yes, the, 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 he has kept that dream alive, hasn't he, unfortunately. Um, so what happened, it was always the amateur side of things. Um, get busy raising a family. Um, those things that you do, whether it's playing a guitar or drawing or whatever, uh, get pushed to the nine thirty to 10 PM hour and you do them before you fall asleep. And, yeah. um, the kids got a little older and, uh, then, then something else happened. I, I was, I'm not from Louisville originally. I'm from Eastern Kentucky. Um, but I was aware of Hugh Haney when I came here to law school, he was still drawing for the Hugh Haney, the longtime yeah. c- cartoonist. For legendary the even. It, it, fairly yeah. legendary. And, 
excellent um, cartoon. In fact, cartoonist, um, they had a, a, um, an exhibit of his works sometime last year. His son, uh, Judge Smith Haney, um, helped put together his hundred uh, best in Smith and other people's opinion, best cartoons. And one of the things that was stunning about going through the Hugh Haney exhibit, which was down at the um, uh, Fraser down, downtown, was how, with some exceptions and some labels, there were very few cartoons that couldn't be published tomorrow. Right. That's either, it, it can be depressing to realize that they were fighting those same battles. Um, you know, one of, one of Haney's, I thought one of his best cartoons was, uh, and, and he addressed in the style of the times and not as aggressively as I'm able to address now. I mean, I'm drawing in a world of memes and Twitter and, um, frankly, compared to what most people are reading and seeing on a daily basis, even though you were very complimentary, and I, I do like the fact that you call them radical, um, they're probably mostly pretty tame to be published the way that they are. Yeah, in a spectacle-driven social media world. That's sure. a great way to put that. Whereas Haney was the only game in town. I mean, a political cartoonist in 1972 was the only game in town. He's the only person being paid to be a smartass. Right. right. So, um, and, 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 and in a medium that everybody was reading, right? Right. which is, which I think is the difference between what you do in the most mainstream newspaper in our community, you know, versus just throwing these cartoons up like Berkeley Breathed does now, you know, on, on yeah. just on Facebook or something like that. You know? and, and it's a, and it's an incredible opportunity to be able to do that. Um, to, and, and we can talk about that to get back to what Joe is asking. Um, and then Nick, uh, and then Hugh, passed away uh they had already hired nick anderson i thought nick was great i mean he has a different style totally different thing and i can imagine that when he after people had spent generations following hugh haney and trying to find his wife's name in the cartoons and all of that um for nick to have come along with a much looser style much more modern style for the you know 80s and then 90s um he ended up winning a pulitzer prize right so here's this tradition of the courier journal um and nick gets a better job offer. Uh, the Bingham sell the paper. Nick gets a job offer in Houston, Texas, and is still the cartoonist there. All of a sudden, the Courier-Journal has no political cartoonist. You know, a paper that, even though I didn't grow up with it, having, you know, not being from Louisville, I, I knew the, the respect and the importance that it had played, the role that it had played with a lot of other newspapers in not just the region, but in the, in the country. Um, it had been about five or six years, and they were just pulling syndicated stuff off the... Off the, um, yeah, it was a dark time. I remember that time. I mean, like Nick, like I kind of grew up with Nick Anderson. Like I knew well, Hugh Haney as a little kid in in the eighties, but <clears throat> in the nineties and the, especially the, the later nineties, like Nick, one Nick was great, and I mean, and, sure. and he had a style that appealed, I think, to nineties kids uh, more so than it would my parents. Um, and and he was sharp. He was just sharp, and he was you know pretty liberal, and that appealed to me as mm-hmm. a pretty liberal guy. Um, and so yeah, him leaving it was it felt like a big loss to me. Like well, God, now the, what, what's the career got? Nothing. So. But did they did they see your stuff? I mean, like obviously they knew your work. Was it different? Okay, you're shaking no your head. no no. Okay. They absolutely did. This is in the category of ask for forgiveness, not permission. Um, <laughs> It had been five or six years, um, and I finally decided in in a, just an awful act of hubris and just idiocy, well, I should be the 
political cartoonist for the Courier Journal. I've never done this before. I can't imagine having to do it every day, etc. But by golly, I'm going to do this. So um, the key here is I didn't tell my wife that I was practicing to do this. So I practiced for about uh, for a couple of months, um, trying to get some style. You just can't draw. You've got to have something, you know. Um, and it was still wasn't obviously in retrospect it's still hor- horrifying to see but um i finally one day went down to the uh, courier and uh, at this time i'm drawing on 2 by 3 feet tall pieces of poster board with india ink and everything else and um, old school yeah old school and it's the only the way, way you had to do it i mean is that the way you had to to, to well at the time ready for submission yes and so there's this big basically orphan baby it was like moses in a basket and i dropped it at the courier i couldn't get in i didn't have an entry nobody knew who i was so i i dropped it at the courier and i put a big thing on it, it says this is for keith runyon totally unsolicited uh, oh believe me yeah my, oh, my life awesome. is full of no one asked me to do this that's, right that's great no that appeals to me yeah so totally unsolicited here's a cartoon for you guys and keith i, I keith knew who i was generally keith runyon one of the editors at the time mm-hmm. of the courier journal because he um had been prosecuted no, not at all. Uh, he had uh, he and the editorial board had actually editorialized against me for Commonwealth's attorney. Oh, right on. Yeah. Um, the, saying comes with a job. If you can imagine that I was uh, too young and inexperienced, and I was just using it as a springboard for higher office, that I was definitely huh. going to run for Congress. And they were right, weren't they? They were totally right, and so it was. <laughs> it, it made my re, it made my response kind of watered down. Uh, yeah, you're right, but that's not really why I'm doing this for a while. Anyway, um, so Keith called me later that day and said, "So is this you?" And I said, "Yeah, yeah," and and I thought that he was going to say. Keep your day job or whatever it is. Um, And he said, can you do more? And, you know, I was off and running. Now, what changed, Dan, is that um, at first I could only do three or four a week because they're on. I was basically doing Banksy walls, you know, trying to get this uh, turned into the courier. Plus, it it meant driving it down. It eventually meant. Well, but wait, wait, what got your foot in the door, though? What was what were the first cartoons that you submitted? The first cartoon that I submitted, there was just one. I mean, the foot in the door was just one. And it was it was an example of there was a need. um, And the selling point was you can always pull. They could still use Nick Anderson. They still do. Um, But he. He's not writing about Louisville stuff. He's not writing about Kentucky stuff. And he's not drawing Matt Bevan with a five o'clock shadow, at, at, you know, and taking selfies of himself. Um, the draw was I'll do the national cartoons, but I can also comment about Louisville and I can also comment about Kentucky. Um, the original cartoon was a um, had two guys wearing a barrel, one of the oldest tropes in the history of cartooning, where it shows that they're poor. You have a barrel on. Right. Why or how anyone ever actually did that, I don't know. But if you're so poor that you're naked, you're wearing a barrel. And one of them uh, had a hat that said social services. The other one had a hat that said education. It was during a session of the legislature. um, And uh, they were getting ready. I know this is odd to remember this in Kentucky's history, but they were cutting funding. Oh, weird. I know. Isn't that crazy? So you could pinpoint exactly the year that that happened. You could just run that cartoon every day, (laughs) right? Every single day. so that's how it got started. Things got easier. You didn't ask this, but things got easier because after having done it for about 
three and a half, four years, uh, I began to do them on the iPad. So I used to travel for depositions with this big sketch pad, and I'd, uh, pens would roll off of airplanes down all the way to the aisle, down to the bathroom, and people would have to help me get my pens. I'd have to find a FedEx Kinko's to scan the cartoon into the courier the next morning before a hearing in you know, another city. Um, now I draw, and I can do it five days a week, um, and I can press send. And it goes to Gannett, so Gannett publishes yeah. them nationally, and then uh, the courier gets them, and they can just throw them up wherever. Right. So it's become easier. And, and so, well, I mean, how has the content changed over time? Because it, just to give folks an idea of what we're looking at, you know, I'm looking at the, the at least the most recent thing that's on your Facebook page, which is a picture of Mitch McConnell, this tiny Mitch McConnell with eight foot thick glasses sitting, uh, sitting in a giant chair that says Supreme Court. And he's saying uh, to, to someone who is presumably Neil Gorsuch, uh, I saved this seat for you, and America is burning behind him. So, <laughs> and there's, you know, of course, you scroll through this stuff, and there's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of Trump, you know, naked in front of crowds. and, and uh, Your Bevan, though, I think is pretty iconic. Cause his, his 5 o'clock shadow, which is permanent, which is always on him. Which I have one, so I'm very sensitive what, to this. Right. At, at 9 a.m., Matt Bevan wakes up with a beard, a full beard from the day before, and but it looks airbrushed like the way you do it is is so funny because it looks like it's just airbrushed on his face and it just kind of hovers like an inch above his skin totally uh, always there it's almost like the old charles schultz uh, pig pen with the dirt always above his head right yeah it's pretty good analogy there actually. but it's not so. but it's not charles schultz though i mean because you're, you're this is a lot of like very controversial stuff Right, yeah. obviously, and in, in, in stuff that we would consider in this country to be considerably left of center. And so, sure. um, in a relatively conservative community. Did, was it always that way? Did you get more controversial over time? Or how did you change? I don't think so. Okay. I don't think that I changed. I don't think that I've become more controversial. I think what's happened is... Everybody else changed. The world has become yeah. uncontroversial. <laughs> the world has become more controversial. Here's an example. For the first, well, okay, until like maybe last summer, I never used uh, a coat hanger in an abortion cartoon. Now we're getting real. Right. And I never used a reference to Hitler or Nazism or the Nazi flag in a cartoon about any of leadership for a couple of reasons. One is because until about a year and a half ago, maybe um, those might have been overkill, no pun intended. And they might've been, I mean, for the same reason that it's considered really poor argument tactic to immediately refer to mother Teresa or Adolf Hitler. Right. Right. There was a time that you just never, you never went there because it was just, it's eighth grade stuff. Right. I mean, your your ninth grade debate teacher says, "Don't do that." Right. It's hi- hyperbole to the point that it has no connection to reality. Right. Exactly. It's the easy way out. Um, and then I re- I recall maybe it was last summer. It was during the election the campaign of twenty sixteen because people will be listening to this for years. Yes. I know, yeah. Uh, over and over. Yeah. Um, it was during the election campaign of twenty sixteen, and um, I had got to the point where I actually just drew a cartoon that only had in it a coat hanger, and the Nazi flag. And I said, here's where we are now. You know, uh, we, we have a governor 
who in a legislature and uh, this new Republican majority that we knew was on its way in, or we should have suspected it was on its way in, um, that is affirmatively, intentionally enacting legislation that will kill women. I mean, I can say it that, you know, that verbally, that strongly. Um, On the other hand, we have actual white supremacists that are enabling the election of the president of the United States. So it's no longer hyperbole that's unhinged or or unattached to the reality of the thing. It's actually happening. And um, those symbols have begun to make, unfortunately, I wish they wouldn't, but they've begun to make more frequent appearances in some of in some of the cartoons. So here is what I observe about those sort of what you might consider more controversial pieces or really just about anything that you do, because I go through and I look at the comments because I can't help myself. So, Oh God, you hate yourself, Dan on your, on your page. And I don't know what it's like on the regular courier page, but on your page, you know, just your personal page, people will get on there. And I'd say that the comments or probably, you tell me if I've got the, the ratio right, about 75% supportive and 25% just shitting all over you. And, and I mean, what what um, what is some of the worst of that that you've heard? How do you deal with that? What is, you know, what is that like? The Courier had earlier published my cartoons in a format electronically where people could comment online. And they stopped doing that. Because they were such a a a, a trigger and a, and a touchstone for just insanity. So does the courier now throw up your cartoons on the on its Facebook page? The, the, no, they won't the, do that. They don't do it. The only okay. the only cartoons that the courier will regularly throw on their Facebook page are um, something that says "Yay, Kentucky, let's play basketball," or yeah. boy, it's a really cold April this year, isn't it?" Because every once in a while, <laughs> right. you, it's almost like some sorbet in between courses. You got to give some people something that yeah. You know, here's so we don't all go insane, right? Exactly. Yeah. Something we have um, to think about. There was a time when the comment section on the cartoons that were posted electronically. Uh, was easily accessible and anybody could type in it, but they've made that much more difficult now. You can't, in fact, you can't do that. You have to toggle to your Facebook thing, and then you're identified. You can't do it anonymously, anonymously or otherwise. So, um, the cartoons are published, and all the galleries are published for every month. You can pull them up on the same page, um, but the commenting is is to the point now where it's almost been limited to people have to write into the courier. As far as my own social media accounts. I've never unfriended anybody, um, and I kind of just check yes every time somebody asks. You know, I accept everybody, unless it's obviously... You are a crazy person, yeah. but go ahead. This is good. No, because it's, it, it is a little bit like a focus group, you know, yeah. um, because I post them on my Facebook page the, the morning before I send them to, to the media to be published. Um, and so I guess it's self, self-selective because generally people of good faith are going to reach out to want to be on my social media because they want to just they, they really do want to hear what I have to say. Um, and so I think that the percentages that you describe are skewed favorably. Right. Yeah. No, that was kind of my point. In, yeah. in, 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 but what is you know, what is the the the, the sort of dark? Oh, underbelly yeah. of what we don't see on that on your Facebook page, right? Well, you know that that causes. There's some pretty awful stuff. Did you get? I mean, was it when they first started putting those up in electronic format, where people could just open ended comment? Was it just, you know, 
I'm going to come to your house and kill you. I'm going to cut off your testicles. I mean, that kind of stuff. I mean, was it you hate lots America? And lots of that? Your family hates America. So then I would think it would be if it was anonymous and just you know a free for all like it used to be. I would expect that it would be about ninety ten people saying they're going to kill you versus support. Right? I think that's true. Yeah, it was, and I think that's true. And then the people who would support are going to stay away because they don't want to be associated. You know, like my family. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> You are right. Those would probably be the numbers. Um, I tend to not pay attention. Well, first of all, I have a very thick skin. I mean, we all have how thick skin. Yeah, how, yeah, yeah, you're I an mean, attorney. But, yeah, I mean, right. Oh, gosh, the judge hates me. Right. Yeah, the judge isn't even thinking about me. I don't care. You yeah. know, um, My client doesn't like me. Um, That's a given. The other lawyer is saying I'm doing bad things. For your clients, yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, all my clients my, hate me for some reason. I don't know why. love yeah. me. Yeah. Hello, uh, clients. So there's a, uh, we all in this business um, had the advantage of, I mean, we're all human beings. We really do care what people think, but I can put that in the right place. Certain people. We care about what certain people think. Well, that's a great way to put that. Um, and, and actually, that does lead to the next point, and that is, frankly, the fact that those people would react the way that they've reacted means that I've done my job to me uh, and it makes me happy um, and then thirdly like for instance my wife will I'll post the cartoon at night and go to sleep and I'll wake up in the morning and there's 300 people that have commented and I, I feel like it's, it's like when you open the basement when you've had a party and the people are still there and you wake up in the morning are you people still here you're still yelling at each other and, and what's happened here? So I tend to like to just... It's more like it's not Christmas morning. Yes, exactly. The opposite of Christmas morning. It's like the scene in Iron Man, you know, that, that first very iconic scene where there, there's an explosion. Or even better, when Heath Ledger in the nurse's outfit walks away from the hospital that's blown up. That's kind of what I do. I mean, I'll just... I'll, I'll just You drop bombs. I'll drop it and then I'll walk away and there'll be this sound and I'll kind of look back and go, you people are crazy. And then ignore it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's probably the healthiest way to deal with it. But so, so, but you said that the world has become more controversial, and that's an interesting thing because it is something that I wonder when I see political cartooning or even just stuff that is satire, you know, like The Daily Show or something, you know, something like that. Is how how do you do satire in in a, a Trump world? I mean, you know, satire is dead. How, how, right? how is it not yeah. dead? I mean, you, you do it and you do it very successfully, but I'm just like, yeah, is it? How are you not just saturated with material? Right. You know, in a world where the Onion is regular news. Well, yeah, and saturated with not only saturated with material that you can draw from, but saturated with material that is in and of itself already. Uh, satirizes itself, right? And there's another point to that, and that is that there are some pretty funny people already, uh, you know, out there. Uh, there are people creating memes all day that I would look at and go, oh, that would have been a great cartoon. I can't do that now. Um, oh, there, you can steal that. No, yeah, there are other, yeah, we plagiarism. Only um, the millennials see that crap. You're, you're <laughs> writing to a, an 80 year old audience at the Courier, so. Please, no one with integrity would ever plagiarize anything. That's true. If you are listening. Senate. Well, <laughs> not if you had uh, aspirations to be on the United States Supreme Court, certainly. But um, yeah, very serious people. Satire is dead. Irony is dead. Um, it's exhausting. It really is. Um, I get to the end of the day. I really have to get home 
with an idea. I mean, my my poor wife, my long suffering wife, as they say, um, <laughs> all our wives are long suffering, yeah, and hopefully for a lot longer. And um, you know, we have these conversations at my house. You know, I had a very odd childhood too. That I, I, I shared say. that photo with You're you. Kind of a weird guy, Mark. Go yeah, on. Yeah. But um, you know, we have these, and so my childhood was full of conversations that just didn't happen at other people's homes. Not awful things, but just about somebody's career and things. Same thing that we have conversations at our house that, um, just don't make any sense out of context or at other people's homes. I'll come home and, and my wife and I will say, how was your day? I love you. Yes. And then do you have an idea yet? Just, and, and I know what she means. You know, yeah. most people aren't confronted with, do you have an idea yet when you get home? And she knows that's the difference between, um, a much more jovial and conversational dinner uh, mm-hmm. if the answer is yes. Yeah, I was going to say, does it make you get home later sometimes? You know? <laughs> <laughs> I don't have an idea. I can't come home until I have an idea. I've been driving around the block for three hours. <laughs> I've had 17 beers and still no ideas. Yes. No, see, there's two rules. One is I can't listen to me. I have two rules, and I guess it's two times two because each of those rules has two subsets. Uh, I don't drink or listen to music until I get an idea. But I can't draw unless I'm drinking and listening to music. So. <laughs> well, there, there were, you know, I, I threw it out. I threw it out to my own Facebook audience, and I said, "We need questions. We're going to have Mark on, uh, and this is a Louisville audience." And I said, "What do you want to ask Mark?" And we got a bunch of questions about process, right? Like, yeah. how do you draw? What do you, you know, do you listen to music? Do you carve out a part of your day? Do you do it at the office? Do you do it while you're defending a deposition where you don't have to ask any questions? You know, that that kind of two stuff. words. Conference calls. <laughs> <laughs> we, oh, we are familiar. Yes. We are. Tell me that you wouldn't love better. to be the cartoonist for the Courier Journal during one of your conference oh, calls, man. so that you would at least have something to do when the fifth. I was person, only the cartoonist of my own life. Yes, <laughs> <You know? laughs> right. When when the fifth person for the tenth time says. We'll circle back on that. Uh, <laughs> right, yeah. Um, <laughs> All my best work is done during webinars. Yeah, exactly. Um, so the process is... Does it help you think outside the box when you're on a conference call with someone who's telling you to think outside the box <laughs> over and over and over? Anyway, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, uh, yes, it, it does not at all. Um, ideally, I've, I've arrived home. Um, and it used to be, ideally, I've arrived at some son's practice or something like that in the evening, certainly once I had the iPad, with an idea. Because the execution of it is, is interesting and fun, and it's like solving a puzzle. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a wannabe musician, and I'm a music guy. And so I probably selfishly, but it's probably true, equate the process to writing a song. And, and writing, we can say it on this show, writing a legal brief. Um, People have cartoon ideas that they'll send to me, or my initial idea is a paragraph long. And um, to me, the best ideas then are stripped down, stripped down, stripped down, stripped down, till my style is um, the best cartoons have almost no words in them at all. You, you know, you all have seen, and there's some Pulitzer Prize winning fabulous cartoonists that have uh, their gig is that they have two people talking. Right. To me, that's just an editorial page article. That's you put talking heads saying the things you want to say. I'm much more into symbolism and iconic images and things like that. Um, how I try to get those images before I get home so that I can relax and draw uh, are through snippets of paying attention during the day, which I would probably do anyway. So 15 years ago, before I started doing this, I was checking news feeds and I was checking things that were going on and paying attention to the world. Uh, I have to do it more 
intentionally now. I tend to eat lunch alone, use that as a good study time. The best days are when I wake up in the morning and I read through the things that I read and I've already got an idea. Oh, that's easy. Right, yeah. Panic strikes at about 8 o'clock at night. I don't want to pull all-nighter. I'm a 58-year-old man. Um, I have things to do the next day. You know, people's lives are in the balance. It, it's, it's not good for your lawyer to be sleeping because he's been up all night drawing. Right, yeah. And yeah. Um, so it gets to be 8, 8.30, 9 o'clock. If I don't have an idea, um, I've got a couple of escape hatches that I've developed. Um, and it's intellectually challenging. Just I'm Trump in a Hitler uniform. You just run it, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've got that. No, I, I mean, I actually, sometimes the idea is driven by, you talk about process, sometimes the cartoon is driven by the image. I know that I want this image. I know that I want a gravestone with the name of every woman who's died because she couldn't have access to Planned Parenthood in the last two years. Now, that's not, that's sort of, it's striking, but it's dull. But I know that that's the image I want. And so I'll leave. Are we, are we real timing your idea for today? Is that what's going on? <laughs> no. Oh, Maybe, though, if we come up some, with some ideas. Um, and then I'll have to have something catchy or interesting or something that isn't just me saying, hey, here's what I think about this. Because ultimately, that's all these are. Uh, I mean, it is also an enormous act of hubris of saying every single morning, hey, here's what I think about this. And so the courier has given me a wonderful platform to be able to do that. Um, Most of the time, though, it isn't driven by the image. It's here's what I want to say. I want to say, well, I want to say that it's just awful and more heartbreaking than can be imagined that children are dying in Syria the way that they're dying. Right. And um, then I have to try to come up with an image because it's all about the image. Um, One of the reasons I get these complaints more so than the editorial writers is um, viscerally an editorial writer can say dot, 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 the blood of American soldiers. And you read that and you go, oh, yeah, the blood of American soldiers. American soldiers are dying. But if I draw an American soldier lying in the sand bleeding, uh, people are offended, shocked, motivated, moved, whatever. Uh, It it affects an entirely different part of the brain. So, Yeah, most definitely. Well, you've pre-answered all the questions that I had about your process, and I think all the (laughs) questions that listeners had about your process – um, except for, well, we did get a question from uh, listener Lucy, who wants to know the time frame between when you get that first spark mm. of, you know, this is my idea, and then to publication. Like, how long does that take? Do you carry some ideas around for days or weeks, and then they're just not ripe yet, or does it all happen in a day? Both. Okay. Uh, I have a list. Uh, whenever I have an idea, I'll write it down. I've got it on my phone. Um, it's passcode protected in case anybody finds that. <laughs> What's <phone>. the passcode? <laughs> <laughs> One, two, three, four. And, um, but normally, and especially, and this gets back to an earlier question that you were asking, you know, it used to be that the Congress would decide to do a bill and then it would be deb- debated for weeks. There'd be a commentary period. Oh yeah. No, we got rid of all right, that. Right. Yeah, that's and all then gone. there'd be months of discussion and then the bill would either pass or fail. So I'd have all that time to ruminate over a cartoon. Now, as far as I know, there'll be a tax bill tomorrow. Right. 
and uh, a healthcare overhaul in you know in two days. Like, yeah, yeah but have you ever tried to read that shit? It's so boring, right? Yeah, oh, and who cares? And who cares? Really? Yes, I mean, no one cares. Yeah. But so, to, to if with with respect to Lucy, uh, with all due respect to Lucy, um, normally the idea will come from even though I've got things that are in the back of my head. Normally, the idea will come from something that has happened that day, and it's because of the timeline. Um, I'll draw that night. I'll post it on my own social media that night as a finished product. I'll every once in a while a, a, a an alert reader will say you, you misspelled, right? You know, Al Qaeda again. <laughs> um, since there's nine ways to spell that, right? Yeah. Uh, but you know they'll point that out, and I'll get feedback. Honestly, I will get some very helpful feedback. Right? I'll wake up in the morning. I won't like really the way it's drawn. But then the the drawing that I did on a Tuesday night, like the drawing that I would have drawn last night. This morning I woke up. I pressed send, and it was in the Courier online by 10 o'clock um, and, and on Gannett nationally online by 10 o'clock. And then that cartoon, just because of the lead time that they're making the newspaper, the paper paper, that cartoon is then would be in tomorrow morning's paper. Right. I, I have one more process question. Does, do you show your cartoon to your wife before you publish it, before you put it on Facebook? Does she get a veto? Have you ever had it where you're like, Hey honey, look at this. And she's like, Oh my God. You cannot run that. That is that's too far, or this sucks, or any. I mean, does anybody get a veto before it goes out, or is it just you? My wife is a far smarter lawyer than I am, and when I've drawn on legal subjects, I've drawn some judges and their decisions, and she can quote the rules of ethics. <laughs> Uh, sentence and paragraph and one of those i know i married a law nerd and um other than that no i actually take great pleasure in surprising her Mm. uh she'll be upstairs does she take great pleasure in being surprised that's that's what i want to know i've never asked (laughs) (laughs) that's just like a husband yeah exactly guess what i did <laughs> when do you see the shit store my so today. we're back to uh, forgiveness versus permission <laughs> right. yeah, i feel like most of the time i'm like full this, circle and you'll appreciate this i feel like most of the time i'm i'm the three-year-old the, the mother walks in and, and sees that i've wrapped the entire bathroom in toilet paper aren't <laughs> right. you proud of me yeah. <laughs> but this took me hours but you're just so darn adorable that you get away with it yes exactly um so we talked a little bit about how how your lawyering influences your cartooning, I think. Um, but what about the way your cartooning influences your lawyering? And by that I mean, uh, do you ever get in a jam with a potential client or with a partner? Yeah, this or, is this is my big interest yeah. is is how your cartooning affects your practice, if at all. I'll never know um, the times that people would have hired me, but chose not to for political reasons. Right. Um, I think, and I'd love to move my career into a direction when the opposite is true, when people do hire me for political reasons. Um, one of the interesting things I found, now there's extra firm and then there's internal in the firm, um, are the, uh, the people who know me as lawyers who absolutely have no idea that I, I'm the artist for the Courier-Journal. And... Um, that could be due to a, a number of things. Um, the people that talk to me outside the firm, um, not talking about clients here, mm-hmm. uh, other lawyers and things, obviously the ones who would say something to me personally are very supportive and, and, and like it and thinks it, think it's a great idea. Internally, 
um, I'm the only editorial cartoonist in in the uh, country that has to run conflict checks every once in a while mm. before I draw a cartoon because I can't. Um, of course, I know who my clients are, but it's a big firm, as you suggested, and so there are going to be clients that I don't know we have, or clients whose interests are affected one way or the other. There, um, and so I have to make sure that I don't advocate or speak publicly just very strictly according to the rules of ethics in a manner that's contrary to their interests. Because, sure. you know, the zealously representing clients pertains to me too, even though they're not technically my clients. Right. You're still associated. That so. is, that has tied my hands uh, with a couple of industries that... Uh, Which ones, Mark? That our firm represents. <laughs> and um, there are a couple of clients quite specifically um, that we have had, that we presently have, uh, that I cannot draw on. Now, again, I don't think the world is worse for the fact that Mark Murphy, that, that they didn't get to read what Mark Murphy thinks about this. But there have been times when, if you do, if you're a fan of the cartoons or if you're a fan of journalism locally, regionally, um, you would expect for me to comment about that. It would be right in my wheelhouse of things that I would write about, yeah. and the opinions would be predictable. Mm-hmm. The cartoon wouldn't be predictable, but the opinion would be predictable. That, um, and I'll have people private message me and public message me and say, and, and then it's a challenge. Right. So where are you at, big man? Yeah, you gonna write about this? <laughs> yeah, you gonna you gonna draw about this? What's... I'll tell you where I'm at, big man. Yeah. You know, I'm in my law firm and I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. So yeah. uh, that's a problem. Now, Not getting um, disbarred. Thanks. Yeah. Well, exactly. so that's interesting because it's it's like that's where you're getting your sort of you know in scare quotes censorship is is from the practice of the law. Have have you ever had the the Courier or any other newspaper say we're not going to run that cartoon? Like we're not going to we're not going to do that. It's too much. Yes, but not very often. Um there's no you know, 1973 Hugh Haney wakes up in the morning, has a great cup of coffee, maybe some toast, goes to the Courier Journal. They have an editorial board meeting. He sits in on it and they all decide what they're going to do. Um, he goes back to his office. He has all day to draw. They engrave it, you know, right, yeah. by three thirty, and then it's yeah. printed. Um, the, in the modern way of working, this certainly with my deal, nobody sees or knows what I've drawn until I've already um, sent it to him. And ninety nine point nine percent of the time, great credit, all credit due to to the courier and the editors and the publisher. Um, who's a conservative person. Um, Nonetheless, uh, there have been very few questions asked. There have been occasions where I've drawn something and I have the sensitivity. I do have the the benefit of having generally the same opinions as the editorial board, right? Anyway, um, there have been a couple of occasions where I knew what I've drawn has walked right up to the edge and you can predict, uh, you can predict, they say you can't predict the Spanish Inquisition, according to Monty Python. <laughs> no, you you can predict the Spanish Inquisition. And uh, I won't post those on Facebook. Or I'll post them on Facebook. I've done this a couple of times and say this is not a Courier-Journal cartoon. Courier, yeah. Right. Um, yeah, there was one recently that uh, comes to mind. It involved urine um, that you said, uh, you said, yeah, this one's not going to the Courier. But I want you all to see this anyway, so... I loved that cartoon. Because yeah. P is just a shade too far. <laughs> well, right, I mean, right. it was... It might be. It was a little graphic. Um, it, it, uh, but it's... Yeah, and you know, I'm, I'm very angry. I mean, I usually. loved it. Well, it was great, you. but... 
Yeah, I get it. I'm usually very angry when I draw. Well, tell us about one of the angry ones that got rejected. Can you can you describe one? Well, that one didn't have the chance to be rejected. Right. Um, one of the this wasn't an angry one. I thought this was awesome, and it was rejected. Um, and I don't know. There was a time when everybody would have known what I was talking about. And I'm not going back to the 30s here, but you remember the iconic uh, University of Kentucky hockey poster that had Ashley Judd wearing just a hockey jersey? Yes. And she's seen, Yeah, I had that on my wall at home. Uh, yeah. Many people did. And um, it was sort of an iconic deal. Most people in Louisville and Kentucky would have recognized that immediately. Well, you recall when Ashley Judd was going to run for the United States Senate against Mitch McConnell. And there was all sort of discussion about that. And really for no political reason, just because I thought it was awesome and funny. Me, I thought it was awesome and funny. Um, I drew a half-naked Mitch McConnell. <laughs> See, everybody already loves this. In I was that, hoping that's where you were going with yeah, that. In the same uh, longish but not long enough UK hockey jersey, coquettishly looking sideways at the camera, saying, fighting fire with fire. <laughs> <laughs> and I got a call. I was so happy about this cartoon. And, and, and I got a call uh, from the courier said, actually, this is one where my wife was right. I said, they're not going to publish that, especially because there were some strategically placed old man hairs. Oh, man. Uh, wait a he, minute. You said you didn't use your wife. To, wait, wait a minute, sir. Let's back up to your earlier well, testimony. she didn't get a veto. I mean, obviously, he yeah, tried, yeah. right? I tried. And they said, we can't, we just, we can't. I mean, they, they bumbled on and on, and I got what they were saying. I said, damn it. So, um, but it's always in my PowerPoint presentations when I speak, though, because it, I'm not going to bury that. At trial. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, well, listen. Uh, I mean, are, have you made prints? I mean, I'll, I'll buy a print of that with, if you sign it. That's great. Well, my wife's a huge UK fan. She'll really appreciate that. That's pretty funny. I do make prints. Um, I uh, if you, you can do that, we won't charge you the fee for doing the show today. That's okay. right. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, yeah. awesome. Um, <laughs> you too can be on Parade of Horribles. <laughs> Fifteen hundred dollars <laughs> per episode per rebroadcast. Um, yeah, I make prints. Um, it's interesting because politicians, you all know this probably, uh, they pretend to not want to be criticized. Politicians, even though many of them have extremely thin skins, they still have to act like they have thick skins. And, you know, God love them because a lot of them are, so many of them are doing great work and it's so difficult. Um, almost every time I draw a politician in a cartoon, not Trump, obviously, um, they want a copy of it. Really? People have visited Mitch McConnell's office, and I've been brutal. Uh, mm-hmm. because, and, and now there was a time when, okay, you're on the opposite side, and um, you're Mitch McConnell, and you're a Republican, and I'm a Democrat, and I disagree with this, and I disagree with that. I truly believe, as I've written and drawn, that he is at ground zero of the reason that our democracy is in danger today. I mean, I'm not afraid to say oh, that. Oh, yeah, easily. And I've said that. Um, <laughs> but there was a time, he may have taken them down, uh, but there was a time that people were quite surprised to visit his Washington, his Washington office and see my cartoons behind them. I, um, too, I would share that surprise. Yeah, and, so and they, it's part of what Maybe they he do. he didn't know. Yeah. <laughs> well, he literally cares about staffers. nothing. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean by that, like, I don't see, I mean, he is consistently criticized as pretty much the worst person in our government. Like his approval ratings are the bottom of the barrel. He can't possibly care at this point. Like he can't, 
he cannot be he cannot care about criticism at this point. It's just so constant. Yeah, maybe he thinks they're funny because yeah, he doesn't I mean, get it and he has no principles. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Right? Yeah. I mean, where he's just like, hey, look, I was in a cartoon. I mean, and he's not, you know, he's not dumb. He's not, a, he's, he's a well-educated person, but he's at this well, point, me. he's just isn't, like, you see what good, Mark Murphy not a good likeness I'm Mitch so McConnell. much more powerful than he is. You know, like, I mean, it's gotta be it. Like that man, he's making cartoons and I'm destroying the country. He's nothing to me. Right. And so imagine how pathetic, how do you get to a place in your life when what you do is you draw other people? Right. Right. Yes. Yeah. yeah exactly. For money. Exactly. Um, yeah, one of the things, and real quick, I, I mean, we're running long, but I don't care. We're, we're, this is a great episode. Um, yeah, we can keep going for like six hours. On uh, you know, I have, I have a smaller platform. I get to write for Insider Louisville every once in a while, and I have stopped reading comments. I've just stopped. Like, and generally, they're pretty favorable. Uh, you know, I am lucky. Insider has a good uh, audience, a good readership. Um, they're all generally pretty smart people. They're well educated. They're business leaders. There's stuff like that, and I get a lot of support. Every once in a while, I'll get an email uh, that's a little too personal. Uh, it makes me uh, go out and get a concealed carry license. But um, but there's also there's there's a drumbeat of you're an idiot, right? You don't know yeah. what you're talking about. You stupid liberal and stuff. And I've just totally tuned it out. Like, I just don't care anymore. Like, I, I know they'll run most anything I write. I try to, you know, I try to be fairly reasonable in everything I write. Um, and uh, I just stop caring. I mean, are you, you're at that point, essentially. I mean, or, or, or do you still sometimes take it personally? I don't take it. I mean, I take it personally. But like I said, most of the time when I read them, um, I try to analyze why they're saying what they said or where this is coming from. And, you know, I mean, I'm not the first person to say this, but we're in an enormous crisis of, of, of fact right now in the, in the country where people are citing and relying upon things that aren't true. Yeah, total nonsense. And, and, and it may be that among the damage that current president does and the people who enable him including mitch mcconnell including matt bevin mm-hmm. uh it may be that the longer term damage i mean health care reform will come and go tax reform will come and go where our economy sits on the laffer curve is a matter of debate and discussion right. those are good discussions um but the damage to truth telling and credibility and a president who lies knows he's lying, everyone of any level of credibility, every journalist of credibility knows and says that he's lying. I, I don't blame, I, I think that the criticism of the mainstream media and all of that, um, I feel like they were always saying that he was lying. I mean, they were calling yeah. him out. Um, it's a really good sign for the democracy that allegedly the Washington Post hired another 100 investigative journalists or something like right. that. Um, but again, the, the longer-term damage will be that... Um, there are people who I think have become, to use your word from before, untethered from a responsible discussion of the nation's politics because they're in a fictional world. And that fictional world is being perpetrated at the very top. And so when yeah. the things that they call you and the things that they call me and the things that they say um, are so broadly and so grossly inaccurate right. and not based on the truth 
that it's just sad. Yeah, and I'll say I don't ignore everybody because every once in a while you'll get some <laughs> legitimate criticism. And I uh, we we had a meeting uh, representing a, a, a client uh, when I was still with Dan's firm. Uh, we were representing a, a controversial client, and an attorney that I, I respect a lot came up and he goes, "You know what? I read your articles and I like most of them, but sometimes I think you're wrong." And I was like, "Will you write a comment? That's will a you, great. Will you please? Comment. Will you please tell me why? Because most of the criticism I get." is unhinged nonsense. And if I had somebody that was smart saying, Joe, I think you're wrong on this, I would love it because then I could refine my view. Instead, all I get is nonstop bullshit. And then, you know, you know, that doesn't affect anything I wrote. One, it's usually it's, you didn't even read what I wrote and you're not even responding to it. You're just accusing me of things. And so when he told me that, I was like, that's the kind of reader I want. Somebody who can look at, read what I wrote, and tell me what I got wrong, if if anything. And I can disagree. I can still think I'm right. But at least explain it to me and, and have a, a normal, intelligent conversation with me. And we just disagree on the details. Instead, it's, it's uh, the, I'm in this reality, you're in this reality, and you're a monster for it, and you're a monster for it, and there's just no... Yeah, and I think it's very fair. It would be a great discussion if you could have it in good faith with... People, including politicians, who are willing to have a discussion like this in good faith, uh, that includes the fact that the people, for instance, of eastern Kentucky, where I'm from, have been horrifically let down by the Democratic Party. Right. You know. Um, for decades, the, yeah. For, for de- decades. And there's people who would be surprised that, that I would say that. And yet we had a most recent candidate for the United States Senate who wouldn't admit that she voted for Barack Obama. Right. Literally wouldn't say who she voted for. And he's he was at that time the sitting president. Um, and so people like that aren't going to be compelling or interesting uh, or certainly example, exhibit any leadership that your ordinary voter in in Boyd County, in Greenup County, um, you know, places that have been left behind when corporations have moved out, mm-hmm. um, people who are. Being told, for instance, that coal is going to come back. Right. This isn't the discussion we intended to have, but being told <laughs> that coal is going to come back, instead of being told it's not coming back, but here's the plan. Right. And instead, what our most recent candidates have said is, yeah, there is a war on coal. I'm a little less angry about it than the Republicans are. Right. No one's going to vote for that person. Yeah. So... Um, but we're a long way from ever having that debate because the fact of the matter is, at this point, we, we almost literally have to save the country. You know, we can talk about coal later. We can talk about health care even later um, if there's enough people alive and not bankrupt to talk about it. Right. But um, I think that – and I say this as a way of all three of – all four of us breaking our arms, uh, patting each other on the back. But um, for very important reasons, I think it's going to be lawyers and journalists that save the country. Yeah, with the immigration ban, I mean, suddenly lawyers were like, you know, held in high esteem. I and mean, that's that's bizarre. Well, usually, and, well but I tell you what, over that immigration ban, I got way more death threats, oh, and no, hate mail and all that shit. Well, you wrote for, for Slate. You pretty well, much put yourself in front of a I didn't, target. But not from that. Not from that. Yeah. From volunteering to help that's immigrants. True. That's in true. That's true. And refugees in the first place after the travel ban first hit. That's right. I mean, I got more hate and more blowback from that. 
than I ever did. I actually got good constructive criticism out of the Slate article. Right. Well, and I was going to say when you when you put out your 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 call, essentially saying, "Hey, I am here to help. I'll do whatever it can can be done." I mean, that became local news of a certain well, extent. How totally benign is it? Right. And I right. get death threats over that. I know, and yeah. that's what I was going to say. I mean, your your call saying, "I am here to help in any way I can for free." Suddenly, it was. I mean. There was this weird criticism that you were doing it for your own monetary gain, even though you said it was for free. I and mean, just and just like this crazy unhinged response, just which we well, know like is, I'm doing it to get famous. Hey, right. hey, let, let me tell you something, people. <laughs> I got a podcast. That's right. <laughs> I'm the host of a podcast that gets literally dozens of listens every oh, it's, episode. It's Look, way over a hundred. Speaking of listens, let's move on to our one listener question. That's right. And I'm just cutting out all the rest of the listener questions because uh, this one is my favorite. And so here it is. It's from listener Kurt. Hi, Kurt. <laughs> Best um, friend of the show, we'll say. Best friend. <laughs> Long time listener. Not first time caller. I mean, yeah, he's, he's the only one that consistently listens, so we had to have him on as a guest. But anyway, right, yeah, he's been on. Uh, Kurt uh, asks, why is it that so few cartoonists can capture the sexual magnetism of Steve Bannon? <laughs> <laughs> what do you say to that, Mark? <laughs> I've thought about this, actually, before Kurt even asked the question, and it's a great question. Oh, who hasn't? I, um, cartoonists draw a, and I know it's not, it's maybe even a rhetorical question, but cartoonists uh, have to, no pun intended, draw a thin line between just making fun of people to make fun of people. And their physical characteristics. Um, I shudder to think, you know, what someone would draw if they were turtle-like physical characteristics. Yeah, there's that. Let's say. There's that. Um, and using it for a point. And it's so hard with Steve Bannon because he looks like a cartoon. If you wanted, to, if you wanted to draw. <laughs> An asshole, <laughs> white nationalist person sitting in the White House, ill-kempt, unshaven, and who looks like he's been on a bender, you would draw him. <laughs> That's what he would look like. And I'm loath to do that because none of us can help how we look. Is he Irish, Martin? I mean, he's Bannon. Is that Irish? Never sure mind. That's yeah. not true. <laughs> he, says, he says he is. Well, and, but, but, and I guess I'm prone not to be kind because I think that he's doing horrible things to the country for personal and other reasons. Now, ironically, he may be one of the few principled people in the administration at this point. It's the problem with his principles. Well, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I don't think he's actually in it just for the money. Yeah. Whereas so many other people are. Um, well, it's a, and he's he's easy prey because he looks the way he does, and yet he thinks he's the master race. And so you, it's so it's easy so to perfect. prey. I mean, somebody who looks like that and honestly believes that they're superior to other people. No, man, not at all. And so, so yeah, I mean, you, you almost feel obligated to go after him just for that. And yet, and the good news though is, I haven't felt compelled to draw him yet. And why I think that's good news is um, his impact has been felt. I think we all know how and why at this point. Maybe we don't know all the extent of it. But um, his impact hasn't been public enough 
I feel like he's being shoved out, not just because of what had happened in the last couple of days with say, Jared Kushner. A, yeah. um, and that's good news for everybody. Um, so, Because he's too principled. I mean, he, like, he's, he, has, yeah. he has something that... Uh, well, and the word is he's taken too much attention from Trump. People are saying he's the real president, and Trump doesn't like that. He's so. not going to like that. Yeah, yeah. Which anybody is fine. thinks that he's not going to turn on them like you know the Joker. <laughs> yeah. I mean, basically, it's like I always think of of these people that are loyalists to him. Like, and I'm talking about old school Michael Keaton Batman Joker, right? You know, where Jack Nicholson just turns to his number one guy at the end of it and shoots him. Like that's Trump. He doesn't, you know, he yeah, doesn't, does not care. Doesn't care. Doesn't care. And as as I've predicted, and I'm not the only person who's done this. Um, I think where that's ultimately going to help us is that because there's no loyalty, um, it's going to be a lot easier for people who get sweet deals from the federal prosecutors oh, yeah. to testify against him. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, you know, he's just putting his family in there, and so this is becoming this giant American aristocracy. But, yeah. you know, look, we've already and gone way over time. And unfortunately, real quick, the federal prosecutors <laughs> work for Sessions now, so, you know. <laughs> Do they? I don't know. I, I don't no, the world makes no sense to me. So. Do they? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Let's hope not. Right, listen, on that high note, this has been, uh, man, I mean, we could have this episode for like 12, but this should be a five-part We should episode. just keep talking and make just it a two-parter. No, no, no. Look, no, we're not doing that. I got all day, man. I carved out my whole afternoon. We're, we're, we're not Mark's not that. dressed for we're the office. Gonna, Come we're on. not going to do that. Um, the court like this today. Oh, but, nice. uh, but, <laughs> but pretty much own the, run the place. Look, uh, Mark, you can see his cartoons at Courier Journal, well, not CourierJournal.com, just in the mm-hmm. actual paper and in Gannett newspapers, which are, I guess, everywhere. Um, but also, what's the best way for people to look at your stuff, past, present, and future? Um, well, I mean, actually, they can go to CourierJournal.com. Okay. Um, so the sometimes it's on the, the front page, uh, uh, actually under top stories, just because it's the most recent thing that's been posted. But then uh, in the opinion page. And on the opinion page, electronically, at CourierJournal.com, um, uh, are all of the cartoons really now, um, I think they're on a five-month rotating basis. So there's a March gallery Already, there's a February gallery, a January gallery, a December gallery. Um, they can follow me on Twitter at Murphy Cartoons. They can uh, toggle onto my Facebook page, which is just Mark Murphy. Mark with a C, everybody. Um, yeah. And 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 if people want to get prints or something like that, is is there a way they can do that? Just private message me and and let me know. Um, I ordinarily, if it's a charitable organization, like I'll offer. Uh, and the cartoons are used pretty frequently at silent auctions. Um, and uh, those are, of course, for free. Uh, if I sell prints, uh, I tend to give them to a school that I'm supporting, uh, give the proceeds of that to a school that I'm supporting downtown. So everybody wins in that regard. Okay. Good and, and I don't know my memory's bad, but uh, I'm sure you skewered uh, Bashir over the gay marriage thing at some point. So I'm going to have to look through that catalog and get one of those as well. So that's great. No, there's also you know, the, the, I mean, probably hundreds of Kim Davis cartoons. But anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll I don't want her hanging on my wall. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, Joe Dunman is, uh, you've got more uh, scrutiny, heightened scrutiny podcast stuff coming out. So heck yeah, I do. Pod.com. Episode five is coming out in about 10 days. Scrutiny pod on Twitter. And you can also find it 
on Facebook. Uh, Martin, what are you doing, buddy? You just closed the show. What else you got going on? I'm looking to have a bit of a snooze later on today. Very good. He's yeah, snoozing. Go. Snoozing and uh, whiskey from Martin. And I am just going to be my plain old lazy self. But this is <laughs> never, does, never does nothing. Episode what? 14, 15? 15. 15 with Mark Murphy. And we love him. And we love you. And we'll see you next time. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, guys. What does the truth you got? Bring back